David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. You know, Andy Stanley caused a stir about 16 years ago when he advised everyone to kill the term shepherd. He said we shouldn't use the term shepherd anymore. It's an overly sentimental word, and he was burdened by the fact that much incompetence had snuck into the church through this overly sentimental view of pastoral ministry. These sort of soft, effeminate men who can't deal with hard business realities of managing a church. So being a shepherd is more than just being sweet and being tender to people. You have to actually run a business. And so it's about 16 years ago in an interview, he said, I think we should stop using the term shepherd. He said doing away with the term would help people to realize that the pastor, he's really the chief executive in an organization that needs to be run well. Well, I can happily say that after 16 years, people have still decided to use that term shepherd, despite his best efforts. And it failed in part because the terms pastor and shepherd are identical, a fact that Pastor Stanley seemed to miss, and he failed to provide us a better term as a replacement. Shepherd, he claimed, was a term Jesus used simply because it was available. Uh, If there had been chief executive officers hanging around the land of Palestine, the Levant, then Jesus would have pointed to them to make his point. And Pastor Stanley has claimed that there's nothing inherently spiritual about the idea of a shepherd for the leadership of the flock of God. So even though it is a biblical term, Stanley has argued that it was contextual. And in a different context, the term shepherd would never have been used. It should be discarded because we're not in a shepherding society. We shouldn't call these men who oversee churches, pastors or shepherds. They should be called something else. In fact, he even goes so far as to claim in this interview 16 years ago, quote, by the time of the book of Acts, the shepherd model is gone. It's about establishing elders and deacons and their qualifications, end quote. So that's a claim worth investigating. So what can we learn about the time of the book of Acts, how they understood pastoral ministry, and what help can we get from Ignatius of Antioch, a man, a bishop, a pastor of Syria who was martyred, who went to the Colosseum. So we're going to learn more about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. So one admittedly helpful result among all the many baleful over Stanley's interview transcript 16 years ago is that I think pastors were made more aware of the need for excellence in handling the management of their churches. I mean, after all, churches have budgets too, and they could learn a few things from corporations about best practices and how to run things, about good management. Uh, good time management even, holding good staff meetings and not wasting everyone's time. 
And so this mixed reception of horror and delight to Stanley, you know, I think is a testament to the Bill Hybels era that reigned over many airport terminal newsstands of the country. This idea that the pastor's just one other uh, chief executive among many, that we can learn a whole lot, not only from the Bible, but also from Google or any other big tech company about running a big organization. You know, despite the warm reception that brand name Big Money Christianity has had, the question that popular literature has still failed to address is the one still in the back of the mind of a man or a woman sitting in the back pew of a church. Is it whether the pastor really ought to be a CEO wearing the skin of a shepherd? I think Andy Stanley has unearthed a riddle that has troubled many consciences even to this day. So the pastor, is he a professional or he is a prophet? Is he a professional or is he a prophet? So the method for my work here is to look at scripture. We're going to see scripture's threefold pattern of pastoral ministry through the rubric of shepherds and see how this pattern plays out in the letters of two early church figures, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch as one, and the other man by the name of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. And I think this enduring vision for pastoral ministry, it's still in force today. Even though the occupation of a shepherd is largely antiquated in modern Western society, pastors are not free to reinvent what they believe ought to be the role of an under-shepherd in a church. The model of pastoral ministry that forms itself after the image of a CEO, it does not fit into the biblical metrics of success because it departs from the model given by Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep and senior pastor of the universal church. So I think what we see in scripture are three farmyard duties chosen to demonstrate this are feed the sheep, shoot the wolves, and pursue the wayward. And these biblical responsibilities, I'm going to show you brief them briefly from scripture, and then they're going to be seen in the seven letters of Ignatius, and also these concerns passed on from Ignatius to Polycarp, as seen in his letter to the Philippians. So what, we, what can we learn from the Bible about the barnyard duties of a pastor, and what can we learn from early church fathers who within a few decades of the closing in the New Testament, how did they imagine and think about pastoral ministry? So here's the first barnyard duty, to feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from Peter and Jesus, if you remember, and the smoke from the charcoal fire at Peter's recommissioning service on the shore of Tiberias by the Sea of Galilee that would have brought back painful reminders how Peter denied Jesus three times around a similar charcoal fire. In Jesus' line of questioning, it grieved the leader of the apostles. And the commands that Jesus gave to Peter on that rocky beach for the care of the flock, they were to define the ministry of Peter. So this command, John 21, feed my sheep, that's not an incidental exhortation 
nor a grasping after a catchy analogy to describe tender business management of an organization. It was a call to something ancient that the fathers of old knew by experience. So, for example, close to death, Jacob affirmed that God had been the shepherd of his life, Genesis 48:15. The people of God are often described as the flock of God in the care of the great shepherd who carried them in his arms to the safety of the promised land, pastures, and he fed them good food. For example, Numbers 27, 17, 2 Samuel 5, 2, and Psalm 28, verse 9. And the Hebrew scriptures describe the leaders of God's people as shepherds over the flock of God. Ezekiel 34, 2, 1 Kings 22, 17, and in Zechariah 10, 2. And the New Testament continues the pattern of describing the leaders of God's people as shepherds and the people as the flock of God. Peter commands elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, 1 Peter 5.2. And Paul knew that after he left Ephesus, many false teachers would deceive the people like hungry wolves that stalk a group of sheep. Acts 20, verse 29. And so the charge of Jesus to the chief apostles to feed the sheep, it is a charge that carries down to all leaders of all churches. If they are to feed the flock, then they must also know what fodder the sheep need to eat. We don't get to decide on our own the diet of the flock of God with no concern of what the New Testament said, ought to feed the flock. So what is that? The food of the flock is sound doctrine. The food of the flock is faithful theology. This was Paul's great burden to Timothy. This body of divinity, this treasure of sound doctrine that he was to pass on to others. 2 Timothy 2.2 What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust this to faithful men will be able to entrust this also to others. So sound doctrine is the life-giving, soul-enriching teaching that brings health to people and is faithful to the pattern of sound words handed down from the apostles to the next generation of teachers. We need men who are faithful, not creative. We need men who are going to stick to what they have learned, and to not come up with something new. So, for example, Paul solemnly charged his protege, Timothy, to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4. And this is a command, as we read. It's given in the sight of God himself. It is an oath bathed in the radiance of the coming kingdom of Christ. It's not possible to give a weightier command and therefore it should not be seen as an incidental piece of advice among the many responsibilities of the young pastor. Preach the word. That is the hub of the wheel, out of which all other responsibilities radiate. And this task is so important because there will come a time, Paul said, there's going to come a time when people will not endure this life-giving teaching. They're going to turn away from the truth. 
And so a shepherd's task is to feed the sheep. Good theology. To promote the good and to put away the bad. In his seven letters, Ignatius followed this pattern from the apostles, and he also promoted good theology for the safety of souls. So who was Ignatius? He was the bishop, the overseer, the senior pastor of Antioch in Syria. It was his job to preach and to teach the people of God in his care. And so his fervency in Christian doctrine earned him a trip to the Colosseum in Rome. And tradition says that he contradicted the emperor Trajan to the face and refused to worship the other gods. And while being escorted by ten Roman guards, Ignatius wrote six letters to churches whom he knew, and he wrote one letter to the bishop of Smyrna, who was Polycarp. And Ignatius, he placed a high concern for doctrine in all seven of his letters. Three of the letters contained patterns of words that resemble early creeds. Uh, he confessed that the great physician is possessed, quote, both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life in death, both of Mary and of God, first possible and then impossible, even Jesus Christ our Lord. That's from his letter to the Ephesians. And to the Trollaeans, he affirmed that Jesus was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and truly died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To Polycarp's church in Smyrna, Ignatius affirmed that Jesus was truly of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and the Son of God, according to the will and power of God, that he was truly born of a virgin, was baptized by John in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him. Ignatius wrote a letter to the Magnesians, and he prayed that they might be fully convinced of Jesus' birth, sufferings, and resurrection that took place during the time of Pontius Pilate, and he affirmed that these things were truly and most assuredly done by Jesus Christ, our hope, from which may none of you ever be turned aside. And on his way to death, Ignatius wrote a personal letter to one man, Polycarp, and they most likely knew each other for many years. And according to tradition, Ignatius and Polycarp were both the disciples of the apostle, and it said in another source that the two were personal disciples of the Apostle John. It's significant to compare the works of these two men because there's an affinity between them. Uh, one can see in Polycarp's letter a reflection of the pastoral duties stressed in Ignatius' letter to Polycarp. And Ignatius sounds a whole lot like John. So Ignatius wrote to Polycarp, and he affirmed truths about, quote, the eternal the invisible, who for our sake became visible, the intangible, the unsuffering, who for our sake suffered, who for our sake endured in every way. 
Now, one can see there was an early concern for right theology in the first generation after the apostles. So John's revelation was probably written A.D. 96, and the letters of Ignatius were probably written around A.D. 110. So just about 15 years or so after the closing of the New Testament, Ignatius is writing and living and ministering. And on his way to death, what is he concerned about? He's concerned about doctrine. He's concerned about right theology. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity and Jesus' death and resurrection, those were premium truths that had to be defended and passed along to the next generation, even as Ignatius was being led away to death. And Polycarp, he too cared about theology and the pastoral burden of right doctrine was being passed on to the next generation. And so the only surviving work of Polycarp is his letter to the Philippians. Uh, that was written perhaps no later than A.D. 120. And in that letter, he affirmed that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father and was given glory in a throne. Quote, to him all things in heaven and on earth are subject. Him every spirit serves. He comes as the judge of the living and the dead. End quote. And in that letter, he calls anyone who does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is the Antichrist. And Polycarp affirms that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree and was one who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but endured all things that we might live in him. End quote. So Polycarp understood penal substitutionary atonement. He understood how Jesus died not for his sins. Jesus never sinned. He died for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, he said. So the office of a shepherd, it cannot be a non-theological office, since it is shepherd teachers that are given to the church, Ephesians 4.11. The leadership of a church cannot be anything but spiritual, since it handles spiritual things. And the good food of the church for the nourishing of souls is faithful theology, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Well, that's really one side of the coin. If you're to teach the good, then what are you to do to those who teach the bad? Well, this leads us to the second barnyard duty of the shepherd, is to shoot the wolves. And so the other side of the coin to promoting good theology is protecting the flock from false teachers and their bad theology. And so the task of the shepherd must include both teaching right doctrine as well as refuting bad doctrine. So Jesus warned the church to beware of false prophets who come looking like innocent sheep but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew 7:15. Paul's final exhortation to the Ephesian elders is that the, they be on guard against predatory wolves that will speak twisted things, trying to confuse the church, Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. The Apostle John explained to the church that there are certain doctrinal denials that would tip one off as to whether they may be dealing with a false teacher. He said that anyone who denies that Jesus came from God 
has the spirit of Antichrist. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John 4, 2. And so Ignatius, he continued in that same pattern of apostolic concern, and he explicitly warned against false teachers in all seven of his letters. All seven, with the exception of the letter to the Romans. He appeals to the churches to avoid being ensnared by the evil tricks of false teachers. So, for example, to the Chaldeans, he warns that they should flee the wicked offshoots that bear deadly fruit, not of the Father's planting. To the Philippians, he urged them to follow their shepherd, the bishop, for guidance, for many seemingly trustworthy wolves attempt to take captive the runners in God's race. Continuing in this theme of false teachers that they are evil beasts, Ignatius said to the Ephesians that they are mad dogs that bite by stealth. And to the Smyrnaeans he said they are wild beasts in human form. And so on his way to death, Ignatius wrote to a fellow pastor and he really unburdens his own heart about the concern he felt about false teaching. He told his friend Polycarp that these false teachers must not baffle him, though they appear to be trustworthy. And uh, the younger Polycarp, uh, at this time perhaps no older than 41 years old, Ignatius said, you must stand firm like an anvil being struck with a hammer. False teachers, Ignatius said, will assault the church, and Polycarp must be that anvil that receives their blows and does not buckle. And the lifelong battle that Polycarp, you're going to face with these wolves, Ignatius says, this battle is like an athletic event. He said, it is the mark of a great athlete to be bruised, yet still conquer. And this same pastoral concern to warn the churches against false teaching. That's passed on from Ignatius to Polycarp. So what did the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, what did he write to the Philippians in his letter? He wrote that whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. So he's taking that line from the Apostle John. He also said this, whosoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And he said, Whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Polycarp encouraged the church to forsake the false teaching of the many, which he considered vanity, and he exhorted the Philippians to, quote, return to the word which has been handed down to us from the beginning, end quote. I love that quote. I love that Polycarp said this. It's an echo from 2 Timothy 2.2. These things that have been said in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. So Polycarp understood his job. It was not to be creative or inventive. His job was to be faithful. Return to the word which has been handed down to us from the beginning. 
Polycarp showed that faithful theology, which is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and protecting against false teachers, these are the roles of a shepherd. And third and finally, the third barnyard duty that we see in the New Testament and we see expressed in the letters of Ignatius and in Polycarp, this third duty is to pursue the wayward. Pursue the wayward. And I think most unlike a CEO, the shepherd is to give individual attention to the flock and to care for their souls. You know, if giving out good doctrine and putting down bad doctrine, if these two were the sole duties of a shepherd, then the pastor of a church, you know what he would be? He would just be a heartless intellectual. Good management cannot be divorced from a tender ethic. The great condemnation of God against the rulers of Israel was that you did not feed the sheep. And Ezekiel 34 says this, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. What a word from the Lord from Ezekiel. You know, more is at stake in church leadership than simply having clear goals and balancing the budget. Israel was exiled from the land. We learn from Ezekiel 34, exiled in part because they had been cruel to the most vulnerable among them, forgetting that they were at one time foreigners in a strange land in need of a protector. Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who knows all of his sheep. John 10, 14 and 15, Jesus knows the sheep. He exemplifies the shepherd as one who leaves behind the 99 in relative safety to pursue one who is in danger. Matthew 18, verses 12 and 13. Paul exhorted the elders to give careful attention to the flock entrusted to them. So the office of pastors, it is not less than a teaching office, but it is more than that. Ignatius said that one sign a person is a false teacher is that they have no concern for widows. He said that in his letter to the Smyrnaeans. He described a bishop, one bishop he knew, to the Trolaeans, as a man whose gentleness is his power. His instructions to Polycarp are full of tenderness, reminding the younger bishop that he is made of both physical and spiritual material, and therefore he should be patient with those who are weak and treat people gently. Ignatius encouraged the younger Polycarp to seek out each individual in his church by name. Polycarp was to model his ministry after the care of the Lord. Ignatius instructed him not to let widows be neglected. After the Lord, you be their guardian. Bishop Polycarp, he continued this apostolic-like concern, and he described presbyters, that is, elders, the uh, associate pastors, we might say, 
said, presbyters must be compassionate, merciful to all, turning back those who have gone astray, visiting all the sick, and not neglecting a widow, orphan, or poor person. That's from Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. And so the motivation for mercy we read in that letter, the motivation for have this, to have this kind of tenderness, Polycarp says it lies in the fact that, quote, we are all in debt with respect to sin, end quote. We are all in debt with respect to sin. Therefore, we ought to be merciful to all. I don't look down on someone and think, ugh, you're just such an awful sinner. I know I'm in debt with respect to sin, a debt that was paid on the cross. And therefore, I can be compassionate to those who are also caught in sin. No Christian, Polycarp said, no Christian should withhold forgiveness or compassion to another person because Christians should be the first to confess that they have been great sinners forgiven of a great debt. So in conclusion, Ignatius was doing more than playing on an extended metaphor by using the analogy of a shepherd. He was not merely describing his burden for church leaders to have a heightened concern against false teachers by invoking pastoral imagery. He showed concern for the life of the young and the vulnerable in the faith against predatory men because being a pastor means being a shepherd over the flock of God. It is the job of a shepherd to equip the flock with faithful theology as well as to chase away those who seek to take advantage of the vulnerable by plausible arguments. Ignatius knew that if churches fell prey to bad theology, then they would not only be misguided, they would be robbed of eternal life. He said that in his letter to the Ephesians. False teachers rob people of eternal life. So what a person says near death, is usually a good indication of their heart's deepest burdens. Ignatius was a man running out of time, with limited moments to write his final words to beloved churches before he was killed in the Colosseum. What was on his mind? The care of the flock of God was utmost on his mind, both for the preservation of faithful theology and for the protection against false teachers. And Ignatius passed on this burden to his friend Polycarp. And these apostolic-like burdens ought to be carried forward to the present. These ancient letters of Ignatius and the ancient letter of Polycarp and the New Testament, these are all clear, clear evidence that the shepherd model, it was still in effect and the churches of Christ in the first generations of the apostles, after the apostles. Despite how unfamiliar and remote the life of a sheep handler might be, even to modern pastors in Georgia, even to us, the Lord expects his shepherds to teach sound doctrine, to rebuke those who are false teachers, and still to pursue the wayward, to feed the sheep, to shoot the wolves, and to go after those who are straying. 
Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Big Truths. I encourage you to look around the website bigtruths.net and see what other resources are there. There's plenty of articles as well as a recent class I got done teaching at our church. Uh, six classes on the mission of missions. So I would commend all those to you. And I'll see you, Lord willing, next week for another episode of Big Truths.